thing we have to fear is fear itself, fear itself. From the Center for History and New Media at George Mason University, this is Digital Campus, a bi-weekly discussion of how digital media and technology are affecting learning, teaching, and scholarship at colleges, universities, libraries, and museums. Campus, episode 110, recorded December 16, 2014, 2014 in review. It's that time of year again. The Digital Campus Holiday Predictions and Year End Roundup podcast is upon us again. It's a very grey and gloomy afternoon here at the Centre for History and New Media on the campus of George Mason University. The weather has not been as brutal in December as it was this time last year, uh, but nonetheless the energy levels seem to be a little bit low amongst the campus, digital campus pop house crew. Amanda, how are things with you? Well, I don't know what you mean about low energy, Stephen. I can't imagine where you get that idea. <laughs> And, and are you down in glorious Charlottesville? No, I actually I'm up in upstate New York in uh, Rexford for the holidays. Oh, good. So your holidays have already begun. What about Indeed. you, Tom Seinfeld? Where are you? I'm in my office at UConn and, you know, looking out at the gray, gray landscape and uh, finishing up my grading and uh, getting ready for the holidays. Yes, unless I have still some grading to do, um, which I shouldn't say too, too loudly. Um, oh. And what about you, Dan Cohen? Uh, gray here as well, but I'm hoping to fix that and my energy level in post-production of this podcast. Okie doke. Right, so, um, and Mills Kelly is going to be joining us, not, not going to be joining us today. So we're going to have, I think we're going to make Amanda Reagan tell us what Mills told her about the follow-ups to his predictions for the year. But before we get to predictions, we have to do our cheers and jeers for the year of 2014. So how about you start us off, Amanda? What is your cheer for 2014? Well, my cheer for 2014 is to the Modern Language Association, which I've belonged to for well over a decade now. The story I talked about just a, a couple of episodes ago, as usual, my memory is a little better for recent news than it is for news that came earlier in the year. But my cheer is basically to uh, Rosemary Fayal, Executive Director of the MLA, for writing a column supporting innovatively enough, the use of Skype and other teleconferencing uh, technologies in job interviews um, instead of people coming to the MLA. It's something that I've seen her reiterating as the conference gets even closer. She's just asking hiring departments to consider uh, you know, doing at least some of their interviewing that way uh, before they bring people to campus, and I think it's uh, uh, certainly a good idea. Yes, indeed. Well, especially since given the exotic locations of both MLA and AHA this year, trips to Vancouver for MLA and to New York for AHA, um, I think the costs will be higher than ever. So, And as Skype people ourselves, we are fully in support of those things. So a cheer for MLA. What about you, Tom? Where's your cheer going? Uh, my cheer this year goes to uh, IMLS, the Institute of Museum and Library Services, uh, which 
reformed its uh, national leadership uh, grant guidelines this year, I think in a very positive direction. Um, for the last 15 years or so, that national leadership grants program has been um, funding a, a tremendous amount of, of incredibly worthy experimentation in uh, digital library and museum um, uh, work. And that has been fantastic. It's been all well and good. Um, and there have been sort of some uh, great successes and some uh you know, predictable failures that have come out of that, uh, out of that, 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 uh, bold experimentation. And what IMLS, it seems has done, uh, this year is to reform those guidelines a bit to, um, what I would say, uh, is, uh, pick some winners. I think that they've recognized that the first, uh, 20 years of the internet or of the World Wide web was, uh, an important time to let a, uh, to let a thousand flowers bloom. And these new guidelines, um, are focused on building a national digital platform. Um, and basically, rather than just letting a thousand flowers bloom, uh, after 20 years, picking some of those flowers and deciding um, what a what an infrastructure, uh, a common infrastructure might look for. I don't think that they're going to, you know, completely um, stop allowing for innovation and, and, and experimentation, but I think they are going to start um, the process of uh, encouraging us as a field, uh, digital humanists, uh, digital librarians, um, to converge on a set of technologies that um, we think uh, that the field has, um, uh, by by uh, way of uptake and by way of by way of acclamation, um, decided are maybe the best. The uh, best ways for us to move forward. So I, I think that that was, um, you know, it's not an uncontroversial thing to do. It's there's a lot of money at stake, um, but I think that they, uh, the, the the IMLS has made a, a good decision um, and uh, will, with this new emphasis, uh, continue to to move the the field forward in the direction that I think it now, after 15 years or so of the program, needs to go. Yes, no, it's an, it's an interesting decision to kind of consolidate. In a year when we've been hearing a lot about anniversaries of the internet and things, I think it's it's definitely, we seem to be in a moment where we're looking around and, and taking stock a little bit more. That brings us to you, Dan Cohen. Who's your chair for? Uh, I'm choosing a different uh, government uh, entity um, this year. And I know we've criticised um, some of the goings-on at the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, around uh, net neutrality, as everyone has been wringing their hands about that. But um, I think a little bit more quietly, and uh, toward the end of the year, um, now in approval stage, uh, the FCC has upped the amount of money that they give to schools and libraries to wire them for high-speed internet from $2.4 to $3.9 billion, an increase of $1.5 billion a year. So. Um, you know, I think a lot of people who listen to this podcast might not realize that the FCC is a major funder in, in this way um, through a program called E-Rate, and uh, they push through a, a fairly significant increase that will help to bring a lot of the libraries, and I, I think we've also tended on this podcast to talk more about university libraries than public libraries, but public libraries, of course, are the way that a lot of people interact with many of the applications and technologies that we talk about on digital campus. and. What this means going forward is that a lot of libraries will now be able to upgrade to um, very high-speed networks, um, in, in many cases fiber networks in the future using this, this pot of money that the FCC distributes and that 
will only cost, I think, something like 16 cents per phone line in the United States uh, per month. So um, I think it's been a long time coming, evidently, when that pot of money was set aside um, in the 1990s to wire schools and libraries to begin with, um, which was really critical in terms of closing the digital divide. Um, it was never indexed for inflation and has, um, in a sense, stayed static for 20 years um, since the first um, Clinton administration. So um, it is great to see that uh, being upped and also um, to have a process in place now where a lot of these places um, where, in fact, one-fifth of Americans get their primary internet access from one of those institutions now means that those institutions will be able to add fiber and Wi-Fi and all kinds of good things in the future. Yeah, that's very exciting news. I mean, I think one of the things we've heard a little bit more about is the ongoing digital divide this year, and, and, and that certainly sounds like a different ma- difference maker in um, all of those for a, a whole range of the... Um, challenges that that poses um i get to go last i guess with my chair and 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 negotiate what other people have done i feel like giving a half-hearted half-hearted chair out to um one of the recipients of many of our jeers at the end of last year which is that we seem to have avoided a government shutdown um courtesy of of some kind of spending bill going through congress but the fine print of exactly what is in that bill prevents me from really directing a chair towards whatever is now operating in our Congress. So I'll take a, a lower key, um, key chair that follows on a little bit from what Dan was talking about. And this is out to our very good friends at the NEH's Office of Digital Humanities, who have also made a change to um, their guidelines for the digital implementation grants. And one that is, I think, in some ways dear to our hearts here at the Centre for History and New Media, they have um, made, now opened up those grants for applications to work on um, preserving, updating, rejuvenating older digital projects. Um, And they've done that in response to feedback from the community. Um, Celebrating our 20th year here at the centre has brought me face to face with a lot of the long standing and heavily trafficked projects that we have. Um, And I think it's an important um, step for ODH to actually recognise that there are a lot of important projects out there that need work um, to maintain their role and to continue to serve their audiences and that there is very little if any money available to do that. Um, So my chair goes out to them for making it possible for us to continue to bring some of those important projects forward um, and to listening to their community um, and adjusting their guidelines in keeping with that. All right so enough positivity it's time to jeer at somebody um and i guess we should really reshuffle the order a little bit here so so let's go to you first tom um who out there is not in fact getting into the spirit of the year who deserves your jeer uh my my jeer this year uh goes out to um i think uh uh uh, an entity that we all um we all know uh, and few of us love, uh, and that is Comcast. Uh, <laughs> I I actually just had an interaction with Comcast customer service, a mind blowing um, and baffling interaction with customer service uh, this afternoon. Uh, I won't go into the details of that. Uh, let me just say that uh, my password will be reset by mail in seven to ten business days. Um, but. <laughs> But uh, and thinking about that experience uh, led me to think about the other things that Comcast has 
has uh, gotten in trouble for this year, um, trying to stake out a monopoly on the East Coast by taking over Time Warner uh, Cable in New York City, um, uh, taking a really retrograde uh, position uh, in the ongoing net neutrality um, debate. But I think uh, the thing that uh, takes the cake is an episode that that happened in uh, June when um, Ryan Block, a a tech journalist, recorded um, his conversation with with Comcast uh, and his efforts to try to cancel the service and (laughs) got into a 20 minute long um, uh, argument where the, the the representative refused to cancel the service and (laughs) was trying to convince him that he really didn't want to cancel the service. I mean, it was a, it was a comedy. um, uh, But, but I think it, it says something deeper about the, the kind of thuggishness of, of Comcast as a company. And I'm feeling, um, particularly um, uh, 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 angry with them today. So I'm going to give them my jeer for the year. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that's appropriate, Tom, because uh, I was just reading some things recently about how U.S. broadband just continues to be slow. And, I mean, of course, Comcast is not the sole culprit in that, but is one of the chief culprits in that. And they, of course, will, you know, say, well, we can't build out the network until you give us all of these other considerations and so on but just even if i i would i would be happy to broaden that to jeering at u.s broadband capabilities generally yeah yeah absolutely absolutely all right well do you want to take it up amanda what's your jeer apart from joining tom uh well sure well uh i'm actually going to sneak in another cheer here i'm going to be sneaky um just to and i'm not sure it's a, a story that we've even covered uh recently but uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation recently um, uh, released a very clear open access policy where any research funded by the Gates Foundation has to be uh, immediately available once it's published. Any of the results have to be immediately um, available. They are not allowing any embargoes after 2017. So I was really excited to see that. And since we hadn't mentioned it on the podcast and since Mills wasn't here, I thought I would sneak it in in my in my section. But I do also have a jeer. Um, and again, it's, it's kind of like you, Stephen, I'm going to do half a jeer. Um, and this might be a bit controversial. It's not something we've talked about either yet on digital campus because it did happen quite recently. So um, Yale recently announced that it uh, received $3 million from the Goizueta Foundation to support the creation of a digital humanities laboratory at Yale. And this, this gets about half a jeer from me uh, for a, a couple of reasons. There's there's, there's the sort of um, vulgar reason of like, oh, really, Yale needs more money, Yale needs $3 million. But that's not even the sort of gravamen of my semi-objection to this. Um, if, if this just happened uh, less than a week ago. And although I'm, I'm obviously all in favor of people supporting digital humanities, and there are some fantastic digital humanities projects coming out of Yale, um, particularly I would cite Photogrammer, which is a, a, a wonderful... Uh, way of visually browsing um, some really important uh, public domain historic photographs, um, which has gotten a lot of buzz. Um, But the reason I have half a jeer for this particular grant is that it really does seem to, um, it seems to be, it seems to be, they're giving it to essentially the engineering schools, you know, they're giving it to the STEM fields and and the computer science fields and saying, well, we want these fields to work with 
um, cultural heritage data, especially that that we have at Yale. And I think that, you know, for me, digital humanities has specifically been something that has been born within humanities departments and then certainly has an entailed partnership with science and engineers and uh, hopefully really valuable partnerships with them. But just the, the phrasing of the announcement, and I'll put a link in the show notes, makes it seem to me, makes me suspect that, um, that some of this money may not go to the existing humanities department-based digital humanities projects that are happening at Yale. I hope that's not the case. Um, and it does seem to me to even further a definition of digital humanities that I think is getting a little too much traction, which is defining digital humanities as only the computational analysis of large corpora, um, which I think is one part of digital humanities. But I got my start in digital humanities of like putting scholarly editions online and things like that. And I would hate it if that gets um, sort of thrown out with the bathwater. So I think we all did, uh, you know, all of us on this podcast. Um, right, right. So, um, you know, and so this kind of grant doesn't sound like it's going to support some of those, you know, other kinds of digital humanities, just putting up nice, you know, in-depth online editions and online archives and so on. So, you know, is it great news for digital humanities, broadly speaking? Sure. Is it great news for my definition of digital humanities, my historically inflected definition, maybe not. So long story short, too late. <laughs> Half a yeah. year. I mean, it's interesting. That was that, that that grant was framed as a STEAM grant. You could yeah, exactly. STEM with A added into it. Um, but but it's, um, Peter Leonard was active on my Twitter stream soliciting advice on drafting um, ads for uh, uh developers to work in a digital humanities environment so it does sound like some of those resources may be going towards the the library at Yale where, where Peter and his team have been doing great things robots reading Vogue is the project of theirs that I've been looking at a lot so yes it certainly bears watching to see just what that what that version of digital humanities means and and just really whether we can have steam or whether it just becomes um, stem again um, Dan. Yeah, I was, I was just thinking it took us at the Center for History and New Media probably 10 years to reach our $3 millionth dollar. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, man. Mm. That would have been nice. It would have been nice to start with $3 million. Yeah. Um, Anyhow, <laughs> I begin um, my jeer with the following quote. Um, we wish to reach the largest daily audience in the world by connecting everyone to their world via our information sharing and distribution platform products and be one of the top revenue generating internet companies in the world. Uh, that of course is Twitter's amazing strategy statement. Um, <laughs> and my, my dear just goes to Twitter this year for just having a terrible year encapsulated in that horrible statement. Um, and just being um, a less fun place to be, I think we've probably hit this several times on the podcast, but I'll just underline it here in my jeer for the year. Um, in that, I just think a lot of us were tweeting less and, and in fact, connecting less to everyone in our world um, through Twitter. And uh, I think it's just become a somewhat more sour place and, of course, had terrible problems with um, uh, gender and race and um, all kinds of awful trolling and shaming and uh, um, just a, a less fun place to be. And so it was just uh, captured in that wonderfully vapid um statement from up above in Twitter land. Um, hope it gets better in 2015. It was a, a, certainly the way that a lot of us got connected in the first place. 
Um, it was, and Digital Humanities has certainly, you know, made a big home on Twitter. But yeah, I would have to say I'm a little less optimistic that that's where we'll be going again. Um, and I'm, I'm just going to actually, I had Twitter in various incarnations in my year, so maybe I'm just going to amplify Dan's year. This was not year. This was not a good year for Twitter, I don't think. And and I think unfortunately it's harder and harder to find the good spaces on Twitter. Um, and that's even before we add in the ways in which institutions like the Board of Governors at the University of Illinois um, read what is going on in Twitter. So I think I think there is a sort of multifaceted year to be directed at Twitter. Some of it's their own fault. Some of it maybe is our fault. Some of it maybe is just the maturation or some a less pleasant word for what is going on in that social platform but I think yes we could not finish years without somehow touching on Twitter I think they will be very anxious I think to turn the page into 2015 all right cheering and jeering aside um, we also predict the future um, with very varying degrees of success on this podcast going forward. Um, I thought we were 100% right all the time. Well, That's only when we're planning what we predict going forward, <laughs> not when we really look back at it. Um, we're 100% right at the time we predict it. Um, this is the moment, in fact, to see how 100% right we were on last year's <laughs> predictions. Um, um, and I guess maybe I, I'll just make you all kind of own your own predictions. At the top of my little show note list here is Tom's prediction, which was summarised as the new learn to code craze will fall on the same way as the moot craze and will start to go away. Tom, are you 100% right about the fate of learning to code? I am 100% right. I'm just a little early. Um, the, the, the learn to code craze... Uh, continues it persists we just saw last week a, a glossy image of president obama writing his first javascript uh code what? Um, <laughs> with al gore yeah yeah he was sitting next in a it. classroom oh. of third graders or something you Hello know world. writing writing javascript like by moving colored blocks around on a on a gooey. Oh, well, um, didn't he I, make a uh, a gif of a cat? <laughs> right, right, exactly. Yep. Well, it's um, a good thing he's got some job skills because he's going to be out of work pretty soon. So I, you know. Yeah. So I I, I am a, I am a little bit early, uh, but I do think that this uh, this year, 2015, is the year that the learn to code craze will fall flat. Um, uh, I the the the. You know there is a tremendous vogue for for um, these learn to code initiatives, um, and they're all I feel like uh, still um, most of them. I, I I can't say all because I don't have experience with all of them. But from what I've seen, uh, they seem um, like window dressing. Um, they're usually short little tutorials using mostly, as I said, graphical user interfaces to move around bits of code to put together, you know, short uh, uh, programs that do things like Hello World. Um, and I, I don't feel like they have the kind of grounding in uh, real world problems that the way, you know, the way that we've learned to code, the way that we encourage our digital humanities uh, students to learn to code is to learn to code to solve real problems, to do things you really want to do with your computer that you can't do otherwise. Um, and I think a lot of these are sort of artificial um, in their uh, in their in their conception and and uh, simplistic in their execution. And I just don't see them um, 
you know, making the big changes that they promise. Uh, and so I'm for 2015, I'm doubling down on that prediction. 2015 is the year that the learn to code craze goes away. Yeah, and it would be great if it was replaced by what you've exactly described, which is the digital humanities vision of how people learn to code in the context of problems with things to actually solve, um, with concrete information to work with, uh, what we may or may not call digital literacy in other contexts, which I don't think learn to code is exactly digital literacy. All right, so Tom is doubling down. He is going to go for um, 100% success in 2015. I don't know what percentage of success that represents right now <laughs> um oh yeah can you defer your percentage we'll see all right amanda affordable college textbooks Woohoo! <laughs> i successfully <laughs> predicted that the affordable college textbook act would not be enacted this year and in fact it cracks me up um this was uh introduced november 14th 2013 uh it was referred to committee in uh in the house uh just a few few days later and it's also in committee in the Senate, and there it sits. And uh, GovTrack.us, which I totally love as a site, uh, gives it a prognosis of 0% chance of being enacted, <laughs> which is not at all surprising. So yes, no Affordable College Textbook Act will come down the pike. And I love this site, too. It's also saying things like, you know, 11% of all bills introduced ever get out of committee in <laughs> the Senate. So it's... <laughs> Well, that's great. Uh, so, so yeah. 0% success for affordable college textbooks is 100% success for Amanda French's prediction for Woo-hoo! 2014. So, so Amanda's prediction coming up for next year is the one to watch, obviously, based on this. Um, all right, Dan, open, open access. Where are we? Oh, uh, yeah. So I think my prediction was actually that we'd have a lot more open access books in 2014. I, I'm giving myself kind of a B on this. I feel like... Um, I feel like the door opened a bit, not as much as I thought would happen because there's still so much of an emphasis on science and, and of course, that means on articles um, versus monographs. But I think this year, if I remember correctly, we did have the Wellcome Institute um, enforce a mandatory open access um, uh, uh, requirement for monographs that they fund in science. Um, there were some other developments as well. Um, Knowledge Unlatched, I think, had a successful round with its consortial model for funding open access monographs in the humanities and social sciences. Um, so um, they got together, I think, a couple hundred libraries who pitched in a bunch of money and essentially got um, out of that a uh, Creative Commons licensed open book as well as a hard copy of those books. So. They did have a successful pilot. I think it was only maybe 100 or 200 books, maybe. It might have even been a little less than that. But uh, again, successful pilot, so uh, door open. And um, there were other developments like the launch in April of Authors Alliance, which uh, comes out of a group in the law school at Berkeley, uh, which essentially um, you know, started a nonprofit that advocated for ways for authors, for instance, to get rights reversions so that they could make their books open access. And been hearing more about that this fall. Um, Pam Samuelson and others uh, at Berkeley and in fact across the country are sort of working out um, how they can uh, advocate for, in a sense, new forms of, of authors reaching their audiences um, uh, if they wish to in these open access ways. So there were, I think there were some stirrings there 
but I uh, can't say that I hit a home run um, this year. Maybe I can be like Tom and, and say it. that's my prediction again for next year. Well, I mean, it's sounding a lot like, yes, it's sounding a lot like Tom. That this is That you're a little <laughs> early, that things are not, in fact, moving Broken as fast as you wanted to be. all I have to say. Yeah, so, so we're, They're yeah. right twice a, twice a day. Yeah, yes. that's right. Well, I get it. You know, the, things just should move faster, obviously, in our kind of visions of the world. Um <laughs> Now, Amanda, who's here with me, spoke to Mills about his assessment of his own predictions. So I'm going to make her channel Mills a little bit to tell us about his predictions. One, we can confidently affirm was 100% wrong. No Amazon drones have been shot down this year in Texas or <laughs> elsewhere. Um, though there are clearly a lot more drones in flight within the United States at the moment. So, um, so, so Mills, again, maybe simply a little bit ahead of his time. that the, the shooting down of the Amazon drone could, in fact, be in 2015. What about Mills' other predictions, Amanda? Uh, so his other prediction was that colleges are uh, hard put out of are going to be hard. Colleges are hard to put out of business, but they do close. Uh, and he thinks about 10 to 20 of them would go out of business this year, uh, and that one of the profit driver universities uh, would make the error of taking over some of those campuses. Um, and he said that not as many have closed as he thought. I think he told me, and don't quote me on the numbers here, but I think he said two or three had closed. Uh, but the most interesting story he had was um, about uh, the Grand Canyon University, uh, which used to be the Grand Canyon College until it was bought a few years ago. Um, and it had been kind of this profit-driven university. It got bought out, and um, the new kind of model, they've renamed it from college to university, and they've got about 80,000 students total. But only, I think, 10,000 of those students actually live on campus. And they've gone uh, through this, you know, like $120 $120 million renovation. They now have like a basketball team that's like Division II. Um, and they've, they've tried to make a real campus experience uh, for those 10,000 students in an effort to make their school uh, kind of more legitimate and unlike the University of Phoenix type places by having a real campus um, and making students around the country feel connected to it. Um, so maybe we can get him to catch us up on that some other time, but it was a really interesting story and he had a lot more details than I do. Um, but he seemed to think that this is uh, the way that these for-profit universities were going to go um, and that the University of Phoenix model is kind of dead. So. Interesting. Well, again, it sounds like we're punting some of that into 2015, that more closures so. will happen, more changes will happen. Um, I don't want to dwell really on my extremely lame predictions from last year, which were largely about things um, not changing. Now, that is beginning to sort of sound like the our, our punting into 2015. Um, though, again, I think we are interestingly talking about MOOCs while still ha being on our agenda as something that maybe is going in different directions than it was originally imagined. But I think as we I looked back over the year um, in preparation for the, the podcast, lame as it was we do in fact seem to be talking about a lot of the same things and at least some of our predictions are that we're going to be continuing to talk about some of the same things into 2015 so i don't know whether that says something about the pace of change slowing down or something about the challenges that we face across a range of issues but we certainly have a bit of continuity flowing from 2013 into 2014 and onward into 2015 have we covered everybody's predictions well no i I do have a new prediction. I am not doubling down. Oh, well, my... we do have new predictions. We haven't got to new predictions. Have we got okay. any of last year's predictions? No, no, doubling down is not going to count. I think we're going to ask Dan and Tom maybe for other new predictions. Um, 
But if that we did cover everybody's predictions from last year. All right. Okay, Amanda, give us your new prediction for 2015. All right. So, um, long-time listeners to the podcast may remember a few years ago when I predicted that the uh, the planning initiative for something that would come to be called the Digital Public Library of America would continue to plan throughout the year, and I was wrong. How did that that turn out? How did that turn out? I turned out to be mostly wrong in that prediction, which I am very happy about. Um, so I have a, almost a, the opposite kind of prediction this year. I've been really interested in um, particularly an initiative that's coming out of the Association of Research Libraries called SHARE, um, which stands for Shared Access Research Ecosystem. And essentially, and it's a, it's a few partnerships, not just ARL. Um, but essentially what this is, is if you know what an institutional repository is, George Mason has one. A lot of universities has one have have one, and it's a it's a movement that got started maybe ten years ago or so, um, where university libraries said, "Well, look, why don't we just get university faculty to deposit copies of their research in, you know, a, a repository that w- will be managed by their institution, and then we can sort of um, do an end run around some of the expensive." journals that, uh, you know, charge us money to buy our own faculty's research back. So a number of, of institutions have set up institutional repositories. Uh, by some measures, it has not been a successful movement, although, mo- you know, many, many places do have institutional repositories now. There's been some sense that a lot of places have difficulty getting faculty to participate in this. Um, so all of that is a long introduction to share which is basically an initiative that's going to start tying a bunch of these institutional repositories together and providing access to that research in a, you know in a more comprehensive way. So I, I like to think of it as almost um, ILL for digitally stored um, academic research articles. You know, let's let's try to you know tie some of these institutional repositories together in such a way that um, we can enable discovery of this material more and enable use of it more so that you don't wind up paying for a copy of something that is available in an institutional repository. So I think it's a, so my prediction for 2015 is uh, unlike my, my prediction for DPLA all those years ago will be that um, the share project will gain some traction in 2015. Now what that will look like, I don't know. They're, they're, the first thing that they're, they're going to uh, build is a sort of a notification service so that you can sign up to be notified when, you know, articles in your area of interest are, are put into an institutional repository, that kind of thing. So that'll be useful. But I think they'll, they'll release at least a couple of things, and uh, this will become an increasingly important initiative in 2015. All right, so that's Amanda putting her 100% success rate in 2014 into share in 2015. Um, and that would certainly be exciting if, if those things did come to pass. All right, Tom, other than doubling down, do you have any <laughs> other predictions for 2015? Um, so I've uh, just recently come across this, um, this uh, sort of amazing new service, Um uh, and it promises to uh, deliver an exceptional value for sending non-urgent messages. Um, uh, for just eighteen ninety-five, you can send uh, up to a hundred words. For eighteen dollars and ninety-five cents, you can send up to a hundred words delivered in three to five business days. Um, this is uh, a new service called iTelegram. Um, it's uh, what has replaced 
Western Union, um, wow. and they and they are still sending messages. And for just under twenty dollars, uh, I could deliver uh, a message to you. Uh, do you have any just, invites? Do you have just any under? I, I do. I do have invites. Um, I, I think they deliver to uh, as many as six or seven countries. Um, this is like steampunk. <laughs> It, it is it is remarkable. I gotta thank um, uh, uh, a Twitter follower uh, and a, a, a colleague at the University of of, Ala, of Alabama, uh, Chris Sula, for that uh, that recommendation. Um, that's my prediction. Uh, I Telegram will take uh, the big. humanities community by storm as Twitter declines. That's in right. As we all flee off Twitter, we uh, need all that time to think about what's the message is coming to us. No, right. Unfortunately, that is a joke prediction. I don't have a prediction for this year, so I guess I'm off the hook for next year. Well, well no, no, the, your double down will roll over. We will turn to you on Learn to Code with 200% of your credibility on the line. <laughs> um, all right, Dan, you, you've sort of doubled down as well. Do you want to throw yeah, no, anything I've, else I've into the other things too um uh uh, clearly comcast will buy yukon um, (laughs) and fire tom do do not say that do not say that too loudly i actually was tweeting about uber the other day and actually i am a little worried that they're gonna come get me Um, uh okay so uh, my my real prediction actually is around privacy um i was just at the coalition for networked information meeting um in dc where there's a lot of discussion about share as well um and uh, many sessions actually on privacy and i think along with this uh sony hacking institute i have been thinking for some time now that we are long past due for some kind of massive university hack where student social security numbers and email, et cetera, et cetera, will be exposed to the world blackboard uh, assignments. Um, I'm, I'm actually surprised this hasn't happened yet. Yeah, well, and Mason's think, been under some serious attack this semester, so we're really, tearing on the edge. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, it is, I think the Sony thing is really scary in that you can just drop in, you know, a terabyte of email onto Pastebin and just let everyone else sort through it. Um, so, I, you know, there's just, we've always been sitting targets. I know at uh, the Center for History and New Media, we always worried about our servers getting hacked because hackers often liked to take over university servers because they're awesome staging grounds for further hacks because they've got high-speed bandwidth and the servers tend to be pretty high quality. Um, you know, that has maybe decreased a little bit, but um, I could certainly see a... Um, you know, a surly student or ex-student going in and, you know, a lot of these things are now automated um, by scripts in terms of hacking in. Uh, and uh, I'm just, I'm wondering if in, in 2015 there won't be some kind of parallel incident to the uh, to the Sony Hacking Institute uh, incident. So uh, that's, my, that's my vague prediction for 2015. Yeah, that's a grim scenario. Um, we certainly seem to be attracting a lot more hacker attention these days in universities, and I guess that is only... At the tipping point. Um, I have a sort of optimistic prediction, something I would like to happen maybe as much as I believe will happen, um, but it's certainly beginning to happen. Uh, and, and that is the opening up of some of our big um, subscription-based digital uh, collections for text mining. Um, so Gail Sendage announced uh, a few weeks ago, and again, we haven't had a chance to talk about this on a podcast, that they were going to make available to subscribing libraries um, their complete digital collections for text mining purposes. Um, I was involved in a conversation here at George Mason with the librarians here and some folk from ProQuest who are perhaps unsurprisingly 
also seeking to respond to that and are offering subscribing institutions um, access to ProseQuest historical newspapers for text mining purposes. Um, big important collections for historians that, that have been outside those scopes of analysis. Um, and at least for the moment, um, these profit-orientated companies seem to be trying to gauge the market and work out what they can monetize and so that most of that access is not coming at additional charges as far um, as they're talking about at the moment. So Gail Sendage is talking about shipping university libraries, hard drives of material for mining purposes and for basically the cost of the hard drives, um, which are all thankfully now very cheap. Um, and it seems like ProQuest is going the same way. And it certainly sounds like under, behind... Um, the subscriptions that most of these big providers have been giving individual researchers access to collections for text mining for a while now um, and have been uh, realising that as they field more and more of these requests that there is perhaps a market and a need and I know that Peter Leonard at Yale um, broached this with ProQuest in order to get access to Vogue for the Robots Reading Vogue project that I mentioned a while ago before, and that this is being discussed at a variety of library conferences. So for me, there could be, in 2015, a real tipping point which makes available some of the core digital collections that have been locked up behind subscription gates to the new kinds of digital tools we've got. Um, and perhaps I think for me what will be important about that is it would give digital humanities scholars the opportunity to work on some of the collections that are most important to some of our colleagues who do not generally work in digital humanities and, and, and haven't been able to cross over from the kinds of tools that, that that we use and talk about into the collections that are most important to their research and and at this moment maybe the doors to that are opening a bit um cynically i can't imagine that the, that this access isn't going to be more substantially monetized as we move forward um i've certainly heard that there are institutions playing lexus more substantial amounts of money for text mining access um but that this does strike me as is something that really could open up a whole new set of corpuses of of material that haven't been available to text mining, to um, a range of the computational tools that are being used in digital humanities, um, and in that way make some more connections between um, digital humanities and our colleagues and other disciplines who are using a variety of things. So I, I think I really hope 2015 is the year of text mining, the untext mineable, of, of knocking over some of the access restrictions we have. None of this is going to go out into the open world. This is still about access for libraries who already have subscriptions, but it does sound like there is an opportunity to gain new ways to use these collections for which our libraries are paying a fairly hefty amount um, and to really get them into dialogue with the other collections, I hope. So, so hopefully... I can come back in uh, at this time next year and talk about all of the exciting text mining um, that has now happened on collections that we haven't seen mined before. Right, I think that brings us to the end of our predictions, our recaps, our cheers and our jeers, um, and to the last podcast um, for 2014. Does anybody have any final thoughts before we bid goodbye to 2014 to reappear in 2015? Well, I do, actually. Um, I feel like, uh, you know, I love doing this podcast and we do it um, as often as we can. 
But I just wanted to give an, a little extra cheer to Audrey Waters of Hack Education, who I think is is on the ball every single day, keeping up with all of the education news, you know, K through 12, as well as higher ed. She is my go-to source for things, particularly about online education and for-profit education and education technology generally. So um, if you want things that are uh, you know, really comprehensive in terms of keeping an eye on all of higher education and technology news, I would totally recommend that you check out Audrey Waters at hackeducation.com. She's been doing some great um, 2014 summaries as well. Yep, no, Audrey is certainly one of my go-to people, and there's there there's an ebook of some of her um, writing available at the moment. Uh, I don't think any of us could do without her insights. Um, Dan, Tom, any final thoughts? Uh, I just wanted to thank all the fellows um, for helping to run this podcast in 2014. It's been um, great to have the assistance and uh, participation as well. Yep, that's fantastic. It's It's been exciting for us to have the podcast as something for the DH Fellows to do. Um, and hopefully, as many listeners of the podcast are already aware, the provost here at George Mason has re-upped the DH Fellows scheme for another three-year cycle. So the Department of History and Art History here at George Mason is taking applications for graduate admission in January 15 for the PhD program. Um, and we will have two more DH Fellow slots beginning in um, fall 2015 so we will have another crew of producers on the podcast we have a slight disconnect between cohorts here so we've had a team of second years and first years working together as part of the mentoring that is part of a DH Fellows scheme we don't technically have second year fellows to mentor next year's first years so we'll have to try and work out what else we do about that but yes thank you especially to Amanda who is here as I said at the beginning a little after the normal working time frame for our DH fellows to help us put that together and it certainly made it a lot easier to get the podcast out regularly Tom do you have a final thought for us I'd uh, just like to thank all of you for, you know, for your fellowship and uh, our listeners uh, who stand by us uh, despite long absences and, and erratic uh, uh, recording schedule. Um, and bad predictions. And bad predictions. <laughs> no, no, Amanda was 100% right. We, we have a lot of preparation, I mean, through, through thick and thin, um, all of you. Uh, and best for a happy 2015. Indeed, yes, and a definite shout out to all of those listeners. We've been, we've really upped our game this semester. We've produced the podcast on a remarkably regular basis. Um, and again, thank you to Amanda and Dan and Tom and Mills for finding time in their very, very busy schedules um, at some remove from the Centre for History and Media to put this podcast out. Um, it's one of the, our signature things here at the Centre and, and I'm thrilled that we've been able to continue it into 2014 and beyond. Um, and again, thank you to uh, everybody who's been helping us celebrate the Centre for Junior Media's 20th anniversary this year. Um, we had a very successful conference in November. You can go and listen to the talks um, that we were given at that conference um, on the Centre website and there are also a range of documents from the various discussions sessions we had going around that um, and again Dan and Tom gave of their very limited amounts of time to contribute um, to the two days of the conference so thank you again for that um, and with that 2014 goodbye 2015 um, here we come and hopefully you will hear from all of us not too long into January um, with that goodbye
good holidays. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Please visit us online at digitalcampus.tv, where you can join in the discussion and let us know about stories and issues you would like us to cover on future episodes. Mike O'Malley wrote our theme music. Ask not what your country